I love listening to Billy Graham, especially old school Billy Graham. You know, Lynn and I had the chance to visit the Billy Graham Library a few years ago in Charlotte where I bought the entire Billy Graham preaching collection, which has all of his classic sermons from all the Crusades. As most of you know, Billy Graham grew up in rural North Carolina, and in 1934, he attended a revival led by a traveling evangelist, Mordecai Ham, where he came to faith in Christ. And to no surprise, after finishing college, he became himself a traveling evangelist moving from place to place, town to town, for the sole purpose of evangelistic preaching, which started in Los Angeles, 1949, under this big, massive tent, where Graham preached night after night and brought in thousands of curious visitors, including movie stars and gangsters and athletes, like Olympic athlete Louis Zamperini, where he testified that he had come to faith in Christ under this big, massive tent. But what I love so much about those classic Billy Graham sermons is his fiery preaching style. So the no-nonsense direct message of sin, Savior, and saving faith, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, so no one's exempt. And the passion and the zeal and the conviction to proclaim their salvation only in Jesus For there's no other name under God given among men by which we might be saved. So it's the clarity, the the courage, and the conviction to preach the truth of the gospel. And Billy Graham's delivery style was so arresting because there's passion and energy and this deep-seated sincerity and conviction that he truly believes what he's preaching and that he so desperately wants you to believe it as well that you too might be saved saved. Did you know Billy Graham preached the good news of Christ in person to an estimated 215 million people who attended one of his 400 crusades over the course of 56 years, more than 185 countries? In fact, in 2005, a poll revealed that 35 million Americans, so one in six adults, had heard Billy Graham preach in person. Isn't that incredible? And yet, just the reality of life. Billy Graham's preaching declined over the years, meaning he got older. He slowed down. There's a little less passion, a little less zeal, a little less clarity and conviction, a little less forcefulness, a little less strength in his voice. So over time, he became a little less effective, a little less convincing, a little less persuasive. Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that the message changed or that the good news of the gospel decreased in its effectiveness in any way. But Billy Graham's delivery, his passion, his zeal, his energy, so his fiery preaching style declined. When you got all of his sermons, right, you can see it so clearly when you compare the revivals from the 1950s with his last revival in 2005. And yet millions listened. What's so glorious about our passage this morning is that it declares more clearly than any other passage in the Bible that God is a speaking God. And that he has revealed himself to us 
over the ages. But his delivery style has never waxed or waned or declined in any way, but has only grown stronger, clearer, and more direct with greater impact and influence in the coming of his son, the Lord Jesus. But here's the question. Will you listen? Because God has spoken. And God is speaking most clearly in his son. But will you listen to him? Will you believe him? And will you obey him? That's where we're going this morning. So if you would go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 1. The book of Hebrews starts on page 1001, if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Title of my sermon this morning is God's Definitive Revelation, three points, God's Old Testament revelation, God's final revelation, and then God's glorious salvation. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Follow along as I read. The author says, long ago, at many times... And in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, as soon as we jump in, I want you to notice how beautiful the language is and how radically different it is than the rest of the New Testament. Which, by the way, is one of the reasons why we know that it wasn't written by the Apostle Paul. I mean, let's just quickly compare Hebrews to the rest of the New Testament epistles. Because in every other epistle, the author begins by clearly stating, like the first word, first thing he says is his name. And then who he's writing to, his audience. For example, the book of Romans begins, Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, to all who are in Rome. Corinthians begins, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to the church in Corinth. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Paul, an apostle, to the churches in Galatia, to the saints in Ephesus, to the saints at Philippi, to the saints at Colossae. And the same is true with James and Peter. James, a servant of God to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Peter, an apostle of Christ to those who are elect exiles. So every other epistle starts literally. The first word is the author's name and then the audience to which he is writing. Whereas Hebrews is different. It is so radically different. And it's different for a reason. Because Hebrews is not an epistle. It's a sermon. So he's writing to encourage these dear Jewish believers to not turn away from their faith in Christ back to the Mosaic law, but instead to know that God spoke 
long ago in many portions and in many ways. But in these last days, God has spoken again to them and to us in his son, the Lord Jesus. So God's son is God's definitive revelation. So Hebrews is different. It's different than any other epistle. And Hebrews is beautiful. I mean, let me just read it again. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Do you hear how beautiful those words are? The majesty, the artistry, the poetry. Some of the most beautiful, eloquent, well-known first words of any New Testament book. Because they're more like a novel than an epistle. Just think with me for a moment about first words. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of reason. Uh, wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. What is that? Right, that's the opening line of Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities. Or how about this one? Twas the night before Christmas, when all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas would soon be there. What is that? That's one of our favorite Christmas poems, A Visit from St. Nicholas. Or maybe you're one of those people who don't read anything at all. How about this one? In a galaxy far, far away. Right? The opening lines to the famous Star Wars movie, The Empire Strikes Back. My point is that the opening words of Hebrews are some of the most beautiful, unique, eloquent, and incredible words in the entire New Testament. And I want you to get that. But I also want to make sure you understand the glory of these incredible words. Words that God spoke. God spoke long ago. And that God has spoken in his son. So let's start with A, the glorious reality that God spoke. Verse 1 says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Now, it's obvious that's going to get contrasted with God speaking through his son, the Lord Jesus. But before we go there, let's walk through the descriptions one at a time. They're listed right there in your outline. Number one, in the past, the author's first words are long ago. So similar to Genesis in the Gospel of John, he's saying long ago, meaning in the beginning. Because as we'll see, he's talking about the entire Old Testament, starting with Genesis 1-1 and the creation narrative. Number two, God spoke to the fathers. So God spoke not just words into thin air, but God spoke to people, specifically his people, which can't be limited to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but has to include all the people addressed in God's Old Testament revelation. And how did he do that? How did he speak? Number three, by the prophets. 
but not limited to the prophets because he says, number four, at many times and in many ways. So just think about all the different ways in which God has communicated, in which God spoke. He used creation. He used stories. He used songs and hymns, proverbs, poetry, and parables. He used visions. He used love songs. He used wisdom literature. He used apocalyptic language. And just think about the span of time that we're talking about. Because this is literally thousands of years that God has been speaking. So here's a question. If God has been speaking for thousands and thousands of years to the fathers by the prophets in many portions and in many ways, what's the message that he's been declaring? Well, we don't have to guess there because Jesus summarized it during a seven-mile walk with two companions after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus. Luke 24 tells us, Jesus says, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, so the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. Later, verse 44, he includes the law, the Psalms, and the prophets. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures. So the entire Old Testament, from Genesis 1-1 to Malachi 4-6, he told them, is entirely about me. So understand, Hebrews starts verse 1 with a chronological reference that takes us all the way back to creation, which is absolutely remarkable. But it also sets the trajectory for how the book must be interpreted because the author is putting a stake in the ground for how he's going to explain the gospel, meaning the person and work of Christ can only rightly be understood when it's given in its proper place at the center of all of redemptive history. So the story of God's saving work in Christ begins not just during the Roman Empire, but long ago, in the beginning, when God spoke to the fathers by the prophets in many portions and in many ways. Which means God's great work of redemption starts not with the Gospels, but with creation. And it comes to us right now, this morning, in a context namely the Old Testament, that must be valued, that must be understood and appreciated because God's been speaking the entire time since he created the world. And everything he's been saying has everything to do with Jesus. Does that make sense to you this morning? Well, if that's true, then what should we do? If God's been speaking... What should we do? Let's put it this way. So if you're a parent and you have kids and you're speaking, what should your kids do? They should listen. They should hear, listen, and they should obey, shouldn't they? We should listen. We should hear his words. We should listen, and we should obey. 
Which brings us to B, this great application to listen to God's word, specifically to listen to the Old Testament. Why is that? Well, number one, because the Old Testament is necessary. And number two, because the Old Testament is redemptive. So let's start with number one. The Old Testament is necessary. Now, I say it that way because there's all sorts of ways to have wrong thinking about the Old Testament. One of the ways to have wrong thinking is to think that somehow the Old Testament was written only for the Jews. And the New Testament is written only for the church. Therefore, to not think that it's essential or necessary. We don't don't really need that because that wasn't written to us, which is obviously not true. But perhaps the most common demonstration of that wrong thinking is when we as believers just decide, practically speaking, that we're going to ignore the Old Testament altogether. So we anchor our quiet times in books like Philippians or 1 Peter or the Gospel of Matthew rather than focusing on Leviticus or Jeremiah or Genesis. But here's the problem with that. We can't possibly understand the Gospel of Matthew without understanding the book of Genesis. We're going to see that as we head into the Christmas season. Why is that? Well, because Matthew starts. How does Matthew start? With this big, massive genealogy. And Matthew assumes you know who these people are. So he assumes you understand the good kings from the bad kings. He assumes that you understand the fall of Israel in the north and Judah in the south. He assumes you understand what the deportation to Babylon is all about. He assumes you know all that. And why is that? Because Jesus comes to us in a context. And if you don't understand the context, then you can't possibly understand the Bible. For example, when Jesus walks on the scene in Mark 1.15 and he says the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel, you need to understand the book of Daniel. And how Daniel prophesied that four kingdoms would come and then God's eternal kingdom would come. He told us it's going to be the Babylonians, the Medes, and the Persians, the Greeks, and then the Romans, and that we're then promised a kingdom that will never end. So when Jesus declares the kingdom of God is at hand, he's talking about the eternal kingdom. It's here, it's at hand in the king, the Lord Jesus. But you won't ever know that or understand that if you ignore your Old Testament specifically the book of Daniel. So number one, the Old Testament is necessary because Jesus comes to us in a context. And in summary, that context includes one of promise and fulfillment, which brings us to number two, the Old Testament is redemptive. So the Old Testament doesn't just provide context for the New Testament. It's far more important than that because the Old Testament is full of promises. In other words, God is laying out his great plan of redemption for all of humanity. So there's a promise that the Savior is coming who will deliver us from our sin. There's the promise that he will remember our iniquities no more. There's the promise that he will put his spirit in us and cause us to walk in his ways. Those are glorious promises. 
which come to us through all different means, prophets with details and description, as well as types and shadows, including prophets, priests, and kings, mediators, sacrifices, and covenants. But they're promises that will have a fulfillment in the Lord Jesus. And the truth is, there's no greater book in all the Bible on that than Hebrews, which is why the whole idea of better This idea of better is all over the place in the book of Hebrews. Why is that? Because the Old Testament is redemptive. So it points forward, not just in terms of timing, but in terms of promises being fulfilled. So it seems to me, when you read the book of Hebrews, that everything in Hebrews is better. I mean, do you realize the word better is used more times in the book of Hebrews than in any other book In the Bible. Let me just give you a quick sampling. Chapter 6, verse 9 says, We're sure of better things. 719, grounded on a better hope. 722, because Jesus is guarantor of a better covenant. 86, obtained by a better ministry through a better covenant, enacted on better promises. 9.23, which come through better sacrifices. 10.34, so we might have a better possession. 11.16, of a better country. 11.35, through a better resurrection. 11.40, because God has something better in store for us. 12.24, from a mediator who speaks a better word. So the whole book of Hebrews is grounded on an orientation that the Old Testament is promise and the New Testament is fulfillment. And you see that even as we compare Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. And we move from number one, God's Old Testament revelation to number two, God's final revelation. Before we go there, what's the application? It's obvious, isn't it? We must be those who are listening. We must be those who love the word of God, including the Old Testament, because it's absolutely necessary to understanding the New Testament, because the whole Bible is redemptive. So we have to understand promises if we're ever going to really understand how Jesus is the one true ultimate fulfillment, that Jesus is better. Number two, God's final revelation. As I said, if we just take a moment to compare and contrast verse 1 to verse 2, we'll immediately see our first example of promise and fulfillment. So let's look at them. If you look at your outline and you use 1A with 2A, we'll just walk through this. A, the greater reality that God has spoken to us directly, specifically, individually, and corporately through a single messenger, the Lord Jesus. So here we go, comparing and contrasting. Number one, God spoke long ago. He spoke in the past, but now he's spoken in these last days. So this better message, this final revelation, isn't for a previous time period, but belongs in the here and now, and is absolutely relevant for our current culture. But be clear, that relevance started all the way back at Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. So we've been in these last days since Jesus' earthly ministry, since his death, burial, and resurrection. Number two, God spoke to the fathers, 
So he spoke to the men and women of old in the Old Testament. But now notice, how is he speaking? Who is he speaking to? Not to the fathers, but to us. And how does he speak to us? Well, number three, God spoke long ago to the fathers by the prophets. And we know, number four, he did that in many portions and in many ways. But in these last days, God has spoken to us. How? By his son. And it's not in many portions and in many ways, but it's finally and fully and definitively in his son. Which means God has spoken to us directly, specifically, individually, and corporately through a single messenger, the Lord Jesus Christ, all as a result of his finished work on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, his broken body, his shed blood, his once-for-all sacrifice for our sin. Do you understand? That is the final, fuller message of salvation. That's God's definitive revelation in his son. So please understand, it's verses like verse 2 that demonstrate that the New Testament fulfills the Old Testament, and that the climax of God's redemption is found only in the Lord Jesus. So Jesus is the conclusion of a story that's been going on for thousands of years. In fact, it started at creation, and it includes details, like a son who's a king, and a son who's the agent of creation. Jesus is the long-awaited final fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises and all the Old Testament types and shadows, which is absolutely incredible. But let me, let me show you. So B, a greater description that Jesus is God. Because number one, Jesus is the Son. He's the Son that is the promised King. And number two, he's the Son that is the agent of creation. Look again at verse 2. The author says, but in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, who, number one, God appointed the heir of all things, and number two, through whom God also created the world. So there's two very clear descriptions here, right? Number one, Jesus is the heir of all things, and number two, Jesus is the one through whom God created the world. Now, you might be asking me, how do you get from appointed the heir of all things to what you have in your outline, number one, that Jesus is the promised king? Great question. Here's the answer. There's two ideas being put together here, aren't they? The first is that Jesus is the son. And the second is that Jesus is the heir of all things, which means God's promise to give the son all that he has so his entire inheritance which makes total sense doesn't it that the son would be the heir of all things what does that have to do with him being the promised king well those two ideas the son and the heir of all things come from a promise that we're given in psalm chapter 2 that that goes to the davidic king so Psalm 2 verse 1 says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain against the Lord and against his anointed, his anointed king, his anointed Messiah? Then verse 8, Psalm 2 verse 8, the Lord declares to this king, to this Messiah, you are my son. So the king is his son. Today, you, to you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Then he says this, Ask of me, 
And I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. So the son and the heir are one and the same, but they're also the promised Daphitic king, which only gets clarified and confirmed when you connect it to the promises given in 2 Samuel 7, 14, where God says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son and I will establish his kingdom forever. So what's the author of Hebrews highlighting here? He's highlighting Jesus's humanity, that he will be a king with an eternal kingdom who receives the nations as his inheritance and the ends of the earth as his possession. So Jesus's humanity going forward as the king of an, king of an eternal kingdom for all eternity. Because number one, this son is the promised king. But this son is also, number two, the agent of creation. Because verse two not only says God appointed him heir of all things, but it's through him that God created the world. Now, doesn't that remind you of John chapter one? I mean, just listen to these words as you think about the opening of Hebrews. John 1, 1 to 3 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not anything was created that has been created. So the Son is not just the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. He's also the agent of creation. Because He's the Word that God spoke in order to bring everything into being which has come into being. Jesus is that word. Okay, now put those two phrases together. That God appointed Jesus, the Son, to be the heir of all things, and that it's through Jesus, the Son, that God created the world. So Jesus is the Son, 100% man, because he's the promised king who will establish an eternal kingdom and inherit all things for all eternity. But Jesus is also the Son, 100% God, who is the agent of creation. So this Son is the God-man who reaches all the way back to eternity past. He's the agent of creation, but who also reaches all the way forward, establishing an eternal kingdom, inheriting all things for all eternity for all his people. Isn't that incredible? But doesn't that also make sense? Because the God who creates is the God who redeems. But what's crystal clear is that he does all of that. How? How does he do all of that? How does he manage creation and redemption? How does he do all of that spending all of time in his son? the Lord Jesus, who is the God-man. So number one, God's Old Testament revelation. Number two, God's final revelation. And now number three, God's glorious salvation. Because as soon as the author tips his hand in verse two that Jesus is God, he's the agent of creation, he just keeps unpacking the glory of God the Son. Look at verse three. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, that after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty 
on high. Now, it appears to me that the whole point of the first few phrases is to highlight, number one, that Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the radiance of the Father's glory, and he is the exact imprint of his nature. What does it mean that he is the radiance of the Father's glory? Well, I confess I can't help but think back to the book of Exodus, how the people were led by a cloud by day and fire by night, and how the Shekinah glory filled the temple for everyone to see. So it was a literal, physical manifestation of God. And the people knew that it was God. So no different than what John says in his gospel. John chapter 1, verse 14, that the word that was with God and was God in the beginning, that word became flesh and dwelt among us. What does John say? And we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only Son. And then the rest of John's gospel proves that Jesus is God's Son through his life, through his death, through his burial, and through his resurrection. But he's not just the radiance of the Father's glory. He's also the exact imprint of his nature. So Christ shares the exact same divine nature as God the Son. Now, I think it's really helpful here just to realize this is where the divine Son is very different than a human Son. Because no human Son is the exact representation of his earthly Father. Now, of course, there can be close resemblances, but not exact. Just think about that for a second. Close resemblances, but not exact. You know, I have this one friend who I'm super close with and have known for years and years and years. And his son, from my perspective, is the closest thing that I've ever seen to a mini him. I mean, they look the same. They talk the same. They have the same mannerisms. You could say that about me if my son ever does this to you, right? <laughs> right? You see him do that, and you're like, there's your father. He's right there. But we're not talking about me. We're talking about my friend, right? They look the same. They talk the same. They have the same mannerisms. They tell the same jokes. I hang out with the son, and I'm like, That's not your joke. That's your dad's joke. They tell the same jokes. They laugh the same. They grunt the same at the beginning of their laugh. They stand the same. The most hilarious to me is when they walk next to each other. They walk identical. It's incredible how similar they are. But they're not the same. They're not exact. Your kids are like that to me sometimes. In fact, I was talking to one of your sons at youth group this past Friday night. It was so funny to me. I literally started laughing as I was talking to him. And I'm thinking to myself, you're your father's son. You, you, he's, he's, he's telling me about a place to eat food. And he's arguing for it. And I'm like, you are your father's son. It is so funny to me. So we can certainly very closely resemble our earthly parents. Sons resemble their fathers. Daughters resemble their mothers. But verse 3 says 
Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. So A, Jesus is God in the flesh. Now B, Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Which means, just think about this, if the sun ever decides to stop willing the universe to remain, it would literally cease to exist. Why is that? Because the power to create is also the power to preserve, to control, to maintain, to sustain, and to continue. Which means that it's also the power to bring to end. If and when the Son decides to do so. The author is saying the Son possesses that kind of power, the power to uphold the universe, which means the author is not a deist. So he doesn't believe God set up the world like a clock with rules and regulations, laws and constants, and then put it up on a shelf and then walked away from it. But instead, is personally and intimately Involved in all the details. And those details include, see, God sending his son to be the savior of the world. Look at verse 3. He says, he's the radiance of the father's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Then we get this transition that puts together, think with me about this, that puts together Jesus' person and Jesus' work as our crucified, risen, ruling, and reigning king, that after making purification for sins, you see how that's his work? Here's his person. Now here we go to his work, that after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. As we saw in last week's overview sermon, this idea of purification will get totally impacted in Hebrews, specifically in chapter 7 to 10. But the son's once-for-all sacrifice on the cross is the single event, the single event in all of history that cleanses us from all of our sin. So it not only delivers us from the penalty of sin, but it purifies us from all the guilt and all the shame and all the stain that defiles us. And since full atonement has been accomplished, what does Jesus do? What does he do? He sits down. Why does he sit down? Because the work is done. You see what I'm saying? It's his person and then his work. And he sits down because it's done. It's finished. Where does he sit at the right hand of the majesty on high. Why does that matter? Because the right hand of the majesty on high is the place of favor and authority and supremacy. If you remember, Joseph sat at the right hand of Pharaoh when he ruled and he reigned over all of Egypt. But now Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and he rules and he reigns over all creation. Be clear. When did that happen? When did that happen? He tells us, after making purification for sins. Then he sat down at God's right hand. So Christ's rule and reign over all creation is grounded. It's grounded on his finished work on the cross. In fact, that's what authorizes him to sit down. 
Just like he declared. It is finished. It is done. To the world, salvation comes. Hallelujah, he's alive. Hell was silenced when he cried. It is finished. My work is done. And he sits down. That's how he rules and reigns as our risen and conquering king because he was willingly crucified for our salvation. Now let's just pause for a moment. Let's pause to take in all that we've heard from these three little verses, which as I said earlier, are some of the most beautiful, most eloquent, but also some of the most informative verses you could possibly put together. I mean, just consider the doctrines that are contained in these three little verses. We have Revelation. So the fact that God spoke long ago in many portions and in many ways, but now God has spoken in his son. So we have Revelation. We have creation. We have the Trinity. We have the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We have Christology. We have atonement. We also have a better understanding of who Jesus is. The Son of God, the revelation of God, the fulfillment of God's promises, the heir of all things, the agent of creation, the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact imprint of his nature, the sustainer of the universe, the purifier, the mediator, and the ruler of all of God's people. All of that packed into these three little verses. Hebrews is not for the theologically faint of heart, is it? But it's not just theology for theology's sake. Instead, Hebrews is written to struggling believers so that they might know that in the Lord Jesus, they have God's definitive revelation, who is the author and the perfecter of their faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross to make purification for their sins as their savior and rule and reign over them as their sovereign king. And because that's who he is and that's what he's done, we should absolutely, 100% beyond the shadow of a doubt, right here, right now, in this place, hear his voice, embrace his salvation, and joyfully submit to his lordship over our lives. Because God spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us. He's speaking to us this morning in his son. So here's the simple question. Are you listening? Are you listening? Remember where I started this morning with Billy Graham, whose fiery preaching stunned the nation and the world literally came out to hear him declare the glorious message of salvation, the good news of the gospel, wherever he preached it. And yet his delivery declined. Little less passion, little less zeal, little less energy, little less clarity, conviction, and strength. But not God. God has never spoken clearer. He's never spoken with greater passion, zeal, or desire. 
Because in these last days, he's spoken to us in his son, who's 100% God and 100% man. He's the agent of creation. He's the king who will sit on God's throne for all eternity because of what he accomplished through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So dear believer, dear unbeliever, you do not need another word from God. You don't need another word from God. Instead, what you need to do is hear this word and listen this morning by putting your faith in the Lord Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of your faith. Jesus is God's final word. Jesus is God's definitive revelation. So demonstrate that you're listening, you're you're hearing and you're listening. How do you demonstrate that you're hearing and you're listening? You obey. So demonstrate that you're listening, dear unbeliever, by repenting, by believing, by trusting, and by resting in him and in him alone for the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. Because he's the only one who can make purification for your sins. He's the only one who can make atonement for your iniquities. God is speaking to you right now. He's speaking through his word. He's speaking through the Lord Jesus. I pray that you would hear his voice, that you would listen, that you would embrace his salvation, and then you would joyfully submit to his lordship over your life. And for you, dear believer, the same is true. God has never spoken clearer than he has in his son. Listen to me when I say, you do not need another word. You do not need a new word. You do not need some sort of greater revelation. You do not need a dream. You do not need a vision. You do not need to go walk out in the field and hear an audible voice. You don't need any of that. Instead, you just need to delight yourself in his word that was given both long ago and in these last days in Jesus. Okay, so what does that mean? Practically speaking, it means we should love the word, we should learn the word, and we should live the word. You should write that down. You should love the word, learn the word, and live the word. Love the fact that the Bible is one continuous message of salvation in and through the Lord Jesus. Love the fact that it fits together perfectly, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. Love that you can study it year after year and never possibly plumb the depths of its glorious treasures or exhaust its benefits. So love the word and learn the word. Learn how it fits together. Learn how Jesus is the promised prophet, priest, and king. Learn how Jesus mediates a better covenant. How can you understand a better covenant if you don't understand the old covenant? You got to understand the old covenant to understand the new covenant and why it's so much better, which means you need to learn the word. 
Learn how he is and mediates a better covenant. Learn how he offers a better sacrifice. Learn how he fulfills all of the Old Testament promises. And learn how all of that applies to you. Each and every morning when you wake up and put your little toe out of the bed and live. Love the word. Learn the word and live the word. Do you understand? That's what it means that Jesus is Lord of your life. That you live the word. Let me make something really clear for you. The Bible is not a bunch of suggestions. Hey, here's some options on how you could live your life. These might be good might go better for you. You pick and choose. Which, you know, the ones that work for you. You pick and choose. That's not how it goes. You can't have Jesus as your Savior and not have him as your King. It doesn't work that way. We want to be those who have him as both Savior and King. Because we love the word, we learn the word, and we live the word. Which means that when Jesus commands, you obey. Do you understand that? I'm just telling you that that often becomes very confusing to people. It's incredible to me. So if you love Jesus and you live for Jesus, and you believe in Jesus, then you should obey Jesus. May we be a people who love the word, learn the word, and joyfully live the word. God has spoken to us in his son. I pray that we're listening, that we hear his words, that we embrace his salvation and we joyfully submit to his lordship over our lives for our good and for his glory. Allow me to pray to that end. Father, we rejoice in the reality that God spoke long ago in many portions and in many ways to the fathers through the prophets but in these last days has spoken to us in his son. Lord, I pray that we are those who are listening. Lord, that we would hear your word and we would listen and we would obey. Help us to be a people who love your word, learn your word, and live your word. And we're so grateful for books like, like Hebrews that are going to help us in so many practical ways that we might better understand who the Lord Jesus Christ is. I pray that we would love learning about him so that we might live for his glory and honor and praise. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.